as most of you know, um, and as some of you might not know, we've been working our way uh, through the book of Genesis, and we're about two to three weeks from being done with the series, believe it or not. And uh, from here, we're going we're gonna to take a look starting the week after Thanksgiving. Um, so the first week in Advent, we're going to start a, a series on the Gospel of Luke that I think all of the pastors are really, really excited about here. And I just want to encourage you to, like, if you like advanced work, maybe just take a, a little bit of time and start reading through the Gospel of Luke, because we're going to actually live and breathe in that Gospel for quite some time, and I'm excited about it. The, the past couple of weeks, though, here, we've looked at the life of Joseph. Now, a lot of us know the story of Joseph just from, like, culture culture, Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat and all that stuff. But um, more time is spent on Joseph in the book of Genesis than any other person in the Bible or in that book. So it probably behooves us then to, to take a look at what God is trying to tell us through his life. And one of the things that we keep seeing over and over and over again is that in the life of Joseph, and actually all throughout the book of Genesis, is that God is not this far-off, distant deity who just kind of starts the world and then just stands by and watches it implode, even though sometimes that's what it feels like. Actually, he's a God who's working over everything and behind the scenes, and, and he's a God whose hands are on the steering wheel. He's not asleep at it, but he is he is fully driving this vehicle of the world somewhere, even though we don't always understand. And this is a source for us Christians as a source of comfort and hope. And we've watched Joseph the past several weeks go from being a bratty kid, spoiled by his father, to being thrown into a pit by his brothers, to being sold into slavery by his brothers, to to being bought by a wealthy man named Potiphar, to being falsely accused and exploited and harassed to then being thrown into prison and then as Andrew preached for us last week, being brought to a position of prominence first in the prison and then in Pharaoh's house, second in command over Egypt with more power and authority than he could have ever dreamed of. And that brings us to our text this morning where we're going to see several different things come to a head. And we're going to see that Christ uses the circumstances of our lives to confront us, to call us to himself, and to claim us as his own. And we're going to see through the people in this book that the way that they respond to circumstances says a little bit about who they belong to and who they are. So as we dive in, as have know what it's like to feel like you've been caught. Maybe it was that mistake you made on your taxes. Maybe it was an honest mistake, and you were caught. It may have been five years ago, but you were caught when you got that letter in the mail that says you're being audited. Maybe it was when you were a little kid, and you were caught sneaking that Halloween candy that you got so much of. And growing up, we had this dog, and, and he, when 
he had this like thing with the garbage can. He was a German shepherd. He was big. And, but he was a complete baby because we would come home and if he had gotten into a garbage can, he knew it had been busted. So he used to just run to the basement um, out of fear for, <laughs> for, uh, for being yelled at or scolded. We all would know what it's like to have been caught, whether it's been caught cheating in school or, or whatnot. But we're going to see that Joseph's brothers are going to get caught. They're going to have a sort of collision with their past. And Joseph himself, he's going to have a collision with, with his past. And it's all going to kind of boil over and come to a head. So let's open our Bibles. And we're going to look at Genesis 42 together. It's a long passage. So we'll read through it as we go with our first point being Joseph tests. Joseph tests. Read verses 1 through 20. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, he went on, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some food for us so that we will live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers for he thought something might happen to him. The sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. Um, Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and he bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the weakness of the land. No, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food, they said. We are are all sons of one man. We are honest. Your servants are not spies. No, he said to them. You've come to see the weakness of the land. But they replied, We, your servants, were twelve brothers, the sons of one man, In the land of Canaan, the youngest is now with our father, and one is no longer living. Then Joseph said to them, I've spoken, you are spies, this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one from among you to go get your brother. The rest of you will be in prison so that your words can be tested to see if they are true. If they are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. So Joseph imprisoned them together for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God, do this and you will live. If you are honest, let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go and take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be confirmed. Then you won't die. And they consented to this. Passage opens up in kind of a peculiar way. You get this image of these brothers kind of just lounging around, sitting around hungry. And, and you know, they're, they're just kind of like complaining about their hunger. And remember, there's famine, there's real famine in the land. Most of us don't know what that's like um, to live through. But they're hungry and, you know, you can imagine them, they're kind of like kicking it around to each other. Man, I could really go for some good Chipotle, and uh, but Chipotle is out of chicken, and and uh, the other brother's like, no, bro, you need Chick Fil A. They have Chick Fil A sauce, 
Because if you know, you know, but they're out of waffle fries altogether. They're kind of sitting around and Jacob's like, kids, there's food in Egypt. You're going to need to go and get some. And that's how the story gets off. And they leave Benjamin behind. Because if you remember, Benjamin was Jacob's other prized son. He thinks he's lost Joseph altogether. So he asked them to hold Benjamin back. And then when they're there in Egypt, the unexpected happens. We've all had unexpected things. For some of us, maybe it was the day you took a pregnancy test and you're like, well, son of a gun, this is going to change my life a bit. (laughs) Or maybe you've gotten to a fork in the trail that the map didn't have on it. One time Nicole and I were hiking and we were on a trail and we got to one of these forks. We didn't know that it was going to be there. In the path, One path went this way, one path went this way. And we're like, which one do we take? Well, this trail was named Profanity Trail, so we took the other one, lest we find out what that means. Because if you take the wrong trail, you could be in the woods a lot longer than expected. Well, that unexpected circumstance is what happens to Joseph. There's a famine. He's in charge of everything. And so he has his people. He's just kind of sitting there. His daily job is watching people come in and out, in and out. We want food. We want grain. Can we, get, can we negotiate this, this? And he's giving people grain. And then in walks his brothers, who he hasn't seen in decades. And you can imagine the flood of emotions that comes over him when the very people that caused all of his trouble walk through those doors. And then he remembers when they bow down to him all of those dreams he had all of those years ago. So the text says that Joseph takes a a hostile tone with them. And can you really blame him? I mean, and he begins to interrogate about who they are. And they don't recognize him at all, though he recognizes them. And he begins to flip the script on his brothers. Look at this. In verses 9, 12, and 13, in 14, sorry, he accuses them of spying, which is really interesting because if you remember back in chapter 37, He's basically accused of spying for his father on them. And then in verse 11, and I love this, the brothers say, we are all sons of men. We are honest. And can you imagine being Joseph in that moment? <laughs> You're honest. Like, um, he's thinking, sure you are. But then in verse 17, Joseph imprisons them together for three days which is like being thrown into a pit. And I don't think Joseph is doing this all just like get back at his brothers. I think he's trying to like prove a point. So he throws them into a pit or into prison. Then he makes a deal with them that because he fears God, he'll leave one of them, one of the brothers will stay back while they go fetch Joseph's blood brother, Benjamin, which is like when Joseph was held back from his father 
in the other brother's return. He's making them kind of relive the script of his own life. And then he says in verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God, do this and you will live. If you're honest, let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go and take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be confirmed and you won't die. And they consented to this. We don't know why Joseph wanted to see his brother other than he probably wants to make sure he's okay. So the brothers go and Joseph puts grain in their sacks and he returns all of the money that they would have used to buy their grain. And I find this a little bit interesting. Joseph had a lot of tests for his brothers, but it's at least interesting that he could have reacted in so many ways right? Like he is one of the most powerful nation at the time, basically at his disposal. And what he chooses to do is preserve the lives of his brothers in that moment. Joseph is probably a better person than me. And instead of retaliating, he gives them food and he gives them money. Because the circumstances that Joseph finds himself in, they're proving who his trust is in and who he belongs to. How he responds to that is showing forth who he belongs to. Because Christ uses the circumstances of our lives to call us and to claim us as his own and to confront us. And instead of judgment, Joseph gives grace. Paul writes thousands of years later, he says, don't repay Anyone, evil for evil. Give careful attention to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. And if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Joseph kind of lives by this principle. He doesn't avenge. I want to ask you. When someone has wronged you, when someone sinned against you, how do you respond? Do you forgive? You hold on to the grudge? Like, what does the circumstance show about you? Does it show you belong to God? Whether it's a whether it's a job loss, someone sins against you at school, friends desert you, difficult circumstances. What do those circumstances show? Because these events mold us and shape us and show forth who we really are. Christ uses the circumstances of our lives to confront, call, and claim us. We see that once again, in the crisis that Joseph is facing, he shows forth that he belongs to God and he trusts him. And God uses it to stake a claim on his life, which, which brings us to our second point. The brothers admit. The brothers admit. Look at verse Um, 21. Then they said to each other, obviously we are being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. This is why this trouble has come to us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph understood them since there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. 
When he turned back and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and had him bound before their eyes. Joseph then gave orders to fill their containers with grain, return each man's silver to his sack, and give them provisions for their journey. This order was carried out. They loaded the grain on their donkeys and left there. Joseph sends them out, and the brothers are there, left arguing with each other, not knowing that their brother's eavesdropping on them, saying, obviously, we're being punished for what we did to their brother. That event in their past had not left. It followed them where they went. And he said, we saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. This is why this trouble has come upon us. And then Reuben, you got to love Reuben. He's like, guys, I told you. He didn't do anything really at the time. But guys, see, I told you not to do this. This is why we're in this mess. And Joseph is listening and he's flooded with emotion as he watches people that sinned against him come to terms with what they had done. And the brothers knew enough about God to know that they could not outrun him. He would find them. And they thought that as of right now, God was finding them out. Even later in the narrative, we see that once one of the brothers discovers the money that, that was supposed to be used to buy grain, still in, the, in the, the, the satchel that they brought with them, he's like, what has God done to us? They couldn't run fast enough from this situation. They couldn't run fast enough or far enough from God. God was going to find them. He knew everything that they had done. He had not been asleep at the wheel after all. He had been orchestrating Joseph's life, but he wasn't done with these brothers yet either. And we see that while these brothers claim to be honest men, that once they are being exposed and they've been caught, their sin followed them wherever they went. It's not something they could just get on with now and pretend didn't happen. They couldn't believe their own narrative that their brother was killed and try to forget about selling him into slavery. Their sin had ripple effects and it was affecting them now. And the brothers are put in a position to just do nothing else but admit what they'd done. God had got them cornered. Back when, I don't think I've shared this here, but back when I was in, college, I had an internship in Lexington, Kentucky, and I was working at a missions organization there that sent out short-term teams, and when I was there, I was, I was, um, my, my cousin who lives there owns a, a mixed martial arts academy, and he, like, coaches people that have been fighting, um, UFC and lots of MMA stuff, and he's, and I was a wrestler growing up, and he's like, well, why don't you come down to the school? And, and train with me a little bit. I don't think I shared this here. And anyways, he put me in the class and he's like, you know, since you know how to wrestle, you can do the intermediate class with all the Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys. <laughs> Which was fine, I guess, except wrestlers, what we do is we pin people or win by points. We're not trained in the breaking of arms or chokeholds. So, I mean, it was the longest practice session of my life. Like I was constantly like, oh, I give. And, or like being choked out and tapping and tapping and over and over. I didn't do well at all. And I tapped out a lot. 
And maybe it's a good illustration for what's happening with these brothers right now. That God's kind of got them in a chokehold. And they have nothing left to do but to figure out either how to get out of it or how to tap. You ever feel like God's caught you? Maybe it's a sin that you've kept secret for so long and it keeps rising to the surface. Man, I just can't run far enough from that. Maybe it's what you stare at on the computer. Maybe it's the division between you and someone that you've not made right. Maybe it's a sin that you just keep struggling with over and over and over again. An old Puritan used to say, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And can I urge you that looking at the brothers in this story to not try to outrun it because you can't. You have to face it. You have to repent of it. It will wear you down. David say, David said this in, in the Psalms. He said, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle. Another translation says, I, my bones wasted away from groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy. Whose hand is that? That's God's hand. Was heavy upon me. My strength was drained as in summer's heat. And for some of us, when we're stuck in sin, this is what it feels like, that God's hand is heavy upon us. And you will get no relief, friends, until you repent of it. God uses the circumstances of our lives to confront us, to call us and to claim us as his own. One really powerful story of someone facing their past is the story of a man named Elwin, uh, sorry, Wilson Elwin and John Lewis. John Lewis died in 2020. Some of you might know him. He was a congressman for a while. That's maybe what he's most recently known as. But before that, um, John Lewis was a civil rights activist. He was a freedom rider. And what freedom riders used to do is they used to, to hop on interstate buses. Remember, the busing at the time was segregated, so he used to just hop on interstate buses and ride to the next place in, as a way to protest for liberty for themselves. And um, he was, uh, John Lewis was also um, at the Capitol in 1963 when Martin Luther, gave, Martin Luther King gave the I Had a Dream speech. Well, one day... He and his friends went to a bus station in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And when they were at that bus station that the culture at the time told them they weren't allowed to be in, in walks this man, Elwin Wilson, and his buddies, and they beat John Lewis and left him bloodied and laying down. Wilson was a, Elwin Wilson was a white Klansman. You can see him in this picture. And he did lots of terrible things in his life. But you know what? God got a hold of Elwin Wilson's heart. And he felt like he, as he got older and as he saw the wrongs he was, had done, he sought to make those things right. He was afraid of going to hell and he knew he had some business to do. And he became a follower of Jesus Christ and he went to Georgia, knocked on John Lewis's door as it were, 
said, hey, I'm the guy that beat you back in 1961. This is like 40 years later. And I've come here to seek your forgiveness. And John Lewis forgives him. And they become the closest of friends for a period of time. See, here we have two examples, kind of like on display, of someone who's done immense wrong, but realized they couldn't outrun it anymore. So they needed to repent, and they needed to seek reconciliation. And that's what Wilson does. And then we have, like, John Lewis is almost like a picture of Joseph here, who forgives someone who did him him incredible wrong. And, and Elwin Wilson didn't even stop at John Lewis. He apologized to cities and towns and went on and on and on, seeking reconciliation for all the things that he's done. And you see, friends, the circumstances of our lives, God uses to confront us, to call us, and to claim us as his own. You will keep having a collision course with your conscience unless you deal with your sin. So repent of it. Don't be like these brothers. So let's look at our next point, which is Jacob resigned. So we've seen kind of the reaction of Joseph over here to his brothers, and he tests them, not to be retaliatory, but to test and see who they are. And, and then we see the, the reaction of Joseph's brothers, and they're, they're still like awful people. And now we're going to see the reaction of Jacob in very different scenarios. Look at verse 29. And we'll finish the chapter here. When they reached their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. The man who was lord over the the country spoke harshly to us and accused us of spying on the country. But we told him, we are honest and not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of the same father. One is no longer living. The youngest is now with our father in the land of Canaan. The man who is the Lord of the country, said to us, this is how I will know if you are honest. Leave one brother with me. Take food to relieve the hunger of your households and go. Bring back your youngest brother to me and I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will then give your brothers back to you and you can trade in the country. As they began emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his bag of silver. When they and their father saw their bags of silver, they were afraid. Their father, Jacob, said to them, It's me that you make childless. Joseph is gone and Simeon is gone. Now you want to take Benjamin. Everything happens to me. Then Reuben said to his father, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. But Jacob answered, my son will not go down with you for this brother is dead and he is alone is left. If anything happens to him on your journey, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow brothers make their way home, explain everything that happened. <laughs> but did you notice, you might not have caught it, that they left a key part of the story out. They failed to mention that the, that leader threatened their lives if they didn't bring them back. And again, once again, they claimed to be honest men. I mean, they're truly awful people. And their story lacks some details. And then on top of that, in verse uh, 34, they, they say that Joseph promised that you can trade in the country, which is a promise he never made. So they twisted the story a little bit, these honest men. And then in verse 35, a discovery is made. They begin emptying their sacks, and all that silver falls out. 
And everyone knows this is not good because what's running through their heads is that they're going to be accused of theft now. And then Jacob responds in verse 36. He says this, it's me that you make child, childless. Joseph is gone and Simeon is gone. Now you want to take Benjamin. Jacob accuses the brothers of exactly what they have done. Their actions have put Jacob in this place. And then Jacob ends this speech with, everything happens to me. And Jacob didn't realize what God was up to, that he uses the circumstances to confront us, claim us, and call us. And he resigns, kind of throws his hands up. And he's left in kind of a difficult position because they're in a famine. If they run out of food, they die. He feels if he gives Benjamin, he's afraid that Benjamin is going to die. He's, he's out of options. So he throws up his hands and says, everything happens to me. And I think all of us in this room have at one point in time or another felt like Jacob has felt. Sure, we might not have had as extreme circumstances as losing a son, thinking that your son was lost to being attacked by wolves or whatever. Sure, we might not have had a famine, but certainly we might have been in a place where it's like, man, it feels like everything happens to me. I don't get why. I don't get why I keep getting put in this position. I don't get why I keep losing. I don't get why I'm having this suffering in my life. Everything happens to me. And he just throws his arms up and and resigns himself to the story. And we can kind of contrast him with Joseph a little bit. Joseph, the man, everything literally happened to Joseph, right? If anyone could claim that in the story, it was Joseph. But Joseph never does this. He never bemoans his situation. And I'm not here to try to guilt us into not feeling like everything happens to us because sometimes it really feels that way. But what we have in the life of Joseph is this this visual demonstration of what faith in God looks like. This, This ongoing faithfulness in the midst of suffering, of sorrow, of doubt, and of loss. Of just trusting God in those circumstances. Of not throwing up his arms, but instead laying down, opening up his hands to the God who loves him. Jacob resigns, and Joseph doesn't. And we begin to see God's take his claim on Joseph. You ever felt like throwing your hands up? Certainly have. I've certainly felt like I don't get why this is going on right now. I don't get the suffering. But we have two options. We can throw our arms up and resign. Or we can lay ourselves down before the good plans, providences, and promises of God. Because what Jacob doesn't know, and what we won't have time to unpack, is that what happen, what's happening now in the story, God is using to save his people. That the promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, 
He is using all of this suffering, all of this confusion, all of this messiness to preserve his people. Joseph and Jacob couldn't see it. They didn't understand it at the time. They didn't know what God was doing. But God was working. And this moment eventually leads to full reconciliation between the brothers and Joseph, where they begin to see each other for who they are, where there's real repentance and reconciliation between them and restoration between them, and where there is preservation of God. And God wasn't done working in this story. He was using these circumstances to lay hold of his people, even when these people didn't want to lay hold on him, because God is faithful. Throughout the scriptures, Jesus is referred to as our brother. He's a better Joseph. Joseph shows grace to the very people who caused his pain. And Christ shows grace to us. The very people who put him on a cross. And Jesus, through the story, is I think inviting us to lay our plans before his providence, to trust in him, to to come to terms with our sin, to when, when we're in difficult circumstances, lay that before him and realize that he is the better brother, the one we need, the one that can satisfy and to save us. And he is the one. Like Joseph could satisfy the hunger of his brother, Jesus ultimately satisfies our deep spiritual hunger. And the invitation from Jesus is to come to him. Come to you who are weary, who've burdened, who've done wrongs, who've made a hash of things, who feel weighed down from life, who struggle with sin, who feel like the circumstances are set against you, who feel like God himself has set against you. The invitation is to come to the one who says that you can find rest with him. Jesus invites us to press into him, to lay our sins before him, to lay our burdens before him. Our disordered lives, our messiness. And he calls us to himself and his wholeness. You can't run from your sin and you can't run from the one who's holding you. Christ uses the circumstances of our lives to confront us, to call us, and to claim us as his own.